Welcome to episode 164 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Welcome back to another episode. Um, and this week, my as seen on Instagram that I'm sharing is a comedy benefit show that is in person in New York City. If you happen to be there on August 2nd, go check them out. But it's a show for Smiles for Speech, which is a nonprofit um, organization that's providing speech therapy to families that otherwise would not be able to access it. And so it's a great fundraiser and a great... Um, cause to go look at. And so make sure that if you can go in person, if you're one of our lovely New York listeners, that you're going in person. If not, you can um, look them up on Instagram and find other ways to donate. And I know um, Amanda with Panda Speech that we've had on is involved with it. There's also Deborah Brooks, which is color in speech, and she's big on Instagram too and has done lots of things. And then Sandy Dorsey is an SLP who is the founder. So and look up any of those ladies or um, their Instagram to find information on that. Smiles for Speech. Smiles for Speech. August 2nd in New York City. Yep. Yep. Are you I going? Make it. I you wish. Make it? <laughs> I wish. New York is one of my favorite cities, but I will not be there. Great place. It really is. Yep. Well, I wish them success and yeah. we'll try to keep plugging it and, until. Until it happens. So yep. great. Um, on the podcast today, sorry about it. On the podcast today, we have Leslie Edwards Gaither. And Leslie is a faculty member at Metropolitan State University out in Denver. And she's been with us before, but uh, she and her colleagues uh, just recently published in the SIG 18 Perspectives this uh, article about sort of what we learned. Uh, through COVID, but also what do we need to really focus on going forward in terms of speech language pathology and telepractice? So um, I'm excited to talk to Leslie. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I'm a co-host of Telepractice Today with my dear friend, Kim Allen. And I just wanted to take a moment and ask you a favor. You see, we at the 3C Digital Media Network, yes, and I am also the CEO of 3C, as we call it, we need you. We need you to maybe develop a webinar that we could distribute for you. Or maybe it's a course that you have in mind that you'd like to share your knowledge and skills. We would want to do that with you. We can help you distribute, produce, and distribute all of those things. We have blogs that you could do. Maybe you want to start in this whole wild world of online publishing and online media, and you want to start with a blog. We would be very happy to host that blog on our website. So, if you have some ideas about blogging or a webinar or maybe a course that you'd like to offer or 
Maybe you have an idea for a totally new podcast. You may not know this, but we actually produce five podcasts and it's growing. And so who knows? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. We would love to talk to you. In fact, I would love to talk to you. I would love to showcase what you're doing, your knowledge and skills, no matter what it might look like. Course, webinar, podcast, blog, doesn't really matter. You can reach out to me at Todd at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com. That's T-O-D-D at the number 3, 3C, C as in cat, digitalmedianetwork.com. And I will be in touch. Thank you for considering this. And we'll talk soon. Well, Leslie, welcome back to the podcast. Rainy champion. No, <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> it's good to see you. And uh, for those who didn't uh, maybe hear you on the first time you were on, can you introduce yourself again? Yes, yes. So thank you for having me again. Um, uh, I'm Leslie Edwards Gaither, uh, assistant professor at uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver, or better known as MSU Denver. Uh, and um, it's been great to be back. As I think, if I recall correctly, the last time I was on, I was actually in Denver, but for the interview for the <laughs> position that I have. So we're good uh, luck, right? A, we're good luck for you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> The snowstorm. I remember they put me in into a hotel. Um, I was supposed to drive there because I live in actually I live actually live in Colorado Springs, but I was supposed to drive there. But they said, "Why don't you come the day before?" Because well, you might not be able to get in or out. And they were right. Um, but uh, it's great to be back. Oh, it's great having you. Thank you. So, just uh, you you were mentioning before we started about the program there, and it's, it's a new program. And what are some of the exciting things you guys are doing? Yes, yes. Uh, so um, MSU Denver is only the third uh, master's program in the entire state of Colorado, uh, which is surprising to many people. It was, really was surprising to me. I'm, I think mm -hmm. we talked about last time I'm from Ohio, and I think we have, mm -hmm. what, seven programs? I mean, you can't throw a, a uh, stick. <laughs> Fourteen, I think, now. Oh, obviously, really? I'm behind the curve. Mm -hmm. Crazy. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm used to just, you know, many programs. So when I uh, heard that they were starting a new master's program, and it was specifically going to be um, a program, uh, you know, Denver, about a third of Denver is bilingual, um, was going to be really, uh, had, had a bilingual track. Um, and also they were really interested in technology and uh, in cultural linguistic diversity and, and uh, bringing in more SLPs um, that were interested in that. I said, sign me up. And luckily yeah. they did. Um, so this is, uh, we just uh, started our, the summer session for our second cohort. So we're really excited nice. where the program is going to go and how it's going to feed directly back to the Denver community and beyond. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. That really is. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you back is to talk about this recent article that you guys had uh, in the perspectives, SIG 18 perspectives. So let's, let's talk about that. And if you don't mind, just share the title and we can kind of get into the discussion of your article. 
Sure, sure. Um, well, the title is uh, Viewpoint Telepractice 2025. And yes, it's in uh, perspectives uh, for SIG-18, SIG Special Interest Group 18. Um, but Viewpoint Telepractice 2025, Exploring Telepractice Service Delivery During COVID-19 and Beyond. Um, and I'm glad you can want to stop at the title a little bit, because honestly, I really didn't even want to put COVID-19 in the title. Right. <laughs> right. Um, it wasn't part of the first few drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be completely, I don't know about you all, I don't want to be um, and our listeners, but I'm kind of tired of hearing telepractice and COVID-19. Um, uh, I agree. I agree. I, I, that's what, and I, when we read through articles that were proposals for ASHA, I got sick of ones that acted like telepractice wasn't a thing before COVID-19. <laughs> I that's was right. like, we've been oh. doing this for a long time, people. <laughs> oh, I went to a session where someone was saying that we didn't really, SLPs didn't really do telepractice until COVID. Yeah. And I almost threw something at this person. <laughs> Thank you for representing all of us. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it wasn't, um, that's not where I wanted it to go. And honestly, I wrote, we started writing this in opposition of all of that. Like, let's move on, right. let's move right. forward. Um, but, uh, and I'll just kind of be blunt. I know this is going out to the masses, but putting like, uh, Asha, what are we doing? Uh, with telepractice, um, you know, post all of this and moving forward, I don't think that would really get published. So um, <laughs> we right. we uh, acquiesced. Yeah, yeah. Asha, get on board. That might have not worked as well. <laughs> Come on, everybody. Let's move on. Let's, yeah. What are we doing with telepractice? And that's really what the precipice was. Um, uh, you know, I do mention the 100th anniversary um, uh, of, uh, the association and, uh, and I'm sure many, I'm hoping many things will be kind of evaluated, even if it's in, right. you know, in theory or in practice. And I hope telepractice, mm-hmm. my, my main goals, I hope telepractice is one of the things and one of the areas in our field, we really kind of take a closer look at like what is going on, how are, we know what's gone on. How are we moving forward? What are we doing with this? Can we get on board with any kind of consensus? Even is it teletherapy? Is it telehealth? Is it telepractice? And that's really what we were looking to do. Yep. So what, uh, and I've read your article, so I know some of the things you pointed out there, but in your mind, what did we learn from COVID in terms of telepractice and service delivery? Yeah, I think uh, we probably learned that we were, um, the word isn't isolated, but there's a definite, there, we knew there was a definite rift between those who practiced and mm-hmm. dabbled and those who um, maybe were not interested at all and those who wanted to see it or maybe wanted to use it as a tool in their toolbox, mm-hmm. that there's, there was a definite rift, but we all had to get on board in some way. Um, and now that the, not the dust is settling, but now that we, do we have a choice? More people Mm -hmm. have a choice, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, not that we all didn't have a choice, but, you know, I'm sure we all had clients that it was a choice for them and some that didn't have a choice. Telehealth or telepractice was the way to get them Mm -hmm. services. So, but now that we're sifting through some of that, and I think the rift is still there, um, Mm -hmm. and maybe even more blatant. So I 
That's what I've learned. I've learned that there there are definite attitudes and belief systems and values when it comes to those who are continuing telepractice and telehealth and those who are not. I've I've certainly seen that. And, you know, it goes back to, for some of them, the experience they had, because many of them were literally thrown in. It was a terrible experience for them. So I, I get it. They weren't trained to do it and they had to. Um, and so they did the best they could. And then as soon as they could get away from it, they did. Uh, and then you had others that, you know, they were interested maybe before and then this forced them into it and then they loved it and loved never it. looked back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, have a, a sort of a mixed bag. But I, I do think there is this element of now that, you know, you know so-called COVID is over. It's not over. It's still <laughs> out there. People are mm-hmm. still dying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that it's somewhat over, um, we can just kind of put it back in its box and mm. put it back on the shelf and only pull it out when we need it. You know, only break the glass when there's an emergency and bring out <laughs> telepractice again. Um, so I, th- I do think there's some of that, uh, even in some of our training programs mm-hmm. where they did simulcase and they were you know, trying to set up telepractice sessions so that students could get training and all this other stuff. And then now that it's, you know, COVID is behind us, so to speak, they are all, a lot of the faculty are going back to the old way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And that's also scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, what one of the things we also learned is that we needed training in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now that we have the capacity, I mean, for a lot of us, it was hard during that because we, we had to do you know, right. it was like, do first, train later. Oh, we'll get to that training. <laughs> or the, what about all those lessons learned we all wrote down, right, right? right. during COVID? Right. I think, you know, we, I don't think we're putting those uh, to the complete forefront um, that we need to. I think, in, like in, in the article, I did address some of the, I think, um, maybe it's the word, the blatant, like, of course, rein, uh, reimbursement, right. uh, how we are paying for it. Um, things like licensure. Absolutely. Those are still going forward. Those seeds have been planted, and at least in my opinion. But the training and getting it into the programs and graduating clinicians that are comfortable with it, and maybe even if they have an attitude of where they never want to do it again, but are they at least Mm -hmm. trained to do it well? Yeah. There's plenty of things we did in grad school that we never wanted to do again, (laughs) but we could if we need to. Right. Yes, absolutely. I um, so I've heard of a few programs that uh, are implementing it, but I think we we have a lot of lessons learned. Everyone does, but what we're doing with those—that's uh, I'm not sure. Not sure. Yeah, uh, and we have to. One of the things that I talked to Kim about, and I've talked to other colleagues, um, you know, as as faculty, we have to train students for the world they're going to be working in. And that, that's sort of my personal mission in a sense that we have to train them for what they're going to be forced to do or, or be not forced. That's probably not the right word, but the nature of their jobs are changing. And if our training programs aren't matching that, then we are failing those students. And so, you know, I, it, it, so it, I'm frustrated with a lot of my colleagues who are kind of trying to get away from telepractice and even ASHA with some of the requirements now of what can, you know, hours that can be counted and what can't be counted and all that stuff. And, and, you know, at the graduate level, and then, 
you know, for CFY and all those things. It's for me, in my personal opinion, it's a step back, you know, it's a step backwards. So, yeah, that's just me. Yeah, I, I doubt it's just you. <laughs> um, and then, yes, I think it's um, one of the things with, I think, as educators um, and as practitioners, you know, whether we've supervised students or we're teaching students or we're open to have a fellow, um, is that we come with the posture of, you know, wanting to see them succeed <laughs> or mm-hmm. at least have, you know, and I see and have heard um and just witness to the some of the negative attitudes um that practitioners or or even faculty members can have towards telepractice mm-hmm. and expressing that overtly to students. Right. And what I see in that is I wouldn't even let's just say in person, I love in-person services. I still love sure. that. <laughs> right. But I wouldn't in a course, in whatever course I teach, I would I just would never have the posture of in person is not the way to go, or it's not evidence-based. Right. Or right. And I see that attitude with telepractice. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Maybe, as someone said, that change only happens until people die. <laughs> Something <laughs> about until the graveyards fill, then change can really happen. So, yeah. Yeah. so for some of these programs, we just have to wait it out and maybe people yeah. retire and move on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things you mentioned in the article in terms of what we need to have that consensus on. I, and I totally agree about what do we call our, you know, what we're doing, telepractice, telehealth, you know, speech, teletherapy, all, we, all these things. Uh, we need to sort of decide on what we're going to use um, to lessen the confusion out there for, for all of us. And then also for the consumers that are looking for these services. But you did, you know, in a similar vein, you, you talked about eHelper and then, telehealth facilitator and all these other terms that are being used. And so chat about that. What do you propose that we do with that? Yes. Um, and that was from, uh, once again, personal experience of, mm-hmm. you know, working uh, with the school districts specifically, especially remotely. And we all knew, or we could decide on what that person did. You know, we, right. they were critical in, the, in my dissertation show that also that they are critical in other studies too, showed that that person, whether they are an e-helper, facilitator, um, telepractice helper, paraprofessional, that person is essential for the success of sessions, especially the mm-hmm. consistency and the consistent uh, success of, of sessions. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I um, am still open, have an open posture to, and hope I'm not answering, you're not answering your question or answering it mm-hmm. by not answering. I'm open to what that person is called. Um, and as long as um, it's a consensus that they are in, an important role, um, that the person is trained um, and if school districts would like to, you know, have a consensus, then absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say the term e-helper, I will say it's still, even though it's what I use in my study and I used, uh, that, um, term e-helper because some, some of the, uh, studies I was referencing, uh, with my study used that term. So I decided that's what I would talk about going forward, um, mm-hmm. in my study. Um, but when I say this term e-helper and everyone listening kind of might think of that, they might think, well, that I hear 
um, electronic. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think that's, that was my first reaction to that. Cause I, I'm pretty sure that you're one of the first people that I heard use it when you came on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I was like, e-helper, what is that? Mm-hmm. And it took me a minute. So yeah, I think that's kind of the Im- immediate reaction, but I do agree that it, it's, it's not a bad name for it either. Yeah. It's not a bad name. I can't say that I'm a hundred percent on board with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because if, um, as telepractice has, you know, evolved, you know, in terminology, I mean, I know we all could say digital, you know, mm-hmm. um, or internet or, <laughs> um, you know, we might have to do one of those word clouds. Um, right. Yeah. But, and I use the term ESLP. I mean, that just oh, tells you my mm-hmm. logical thinking. If we're going to have an E helper to me, mm-hmm. once the SLP is in this digital role, we are an ESLP. So to me, those, I use those two terms throughout. It just made sense and helped me honestly write. (laughs) I couldn't write it if I didn't have a name that I could call both of these. So, but I'm still open facilitator. um, You know, when we say paraprofessional, that means many different things already. Right. Um, In our field. So I still have an open posture to what that person is. I'm even more concerned now how they're trained and are they made to feel like they are an important part of the process. That's what I was going to say. Feels like the more important part is do they have training? And something that I feel like I've encountered and I don't know if you can propose a, you know, how to get around this is I feel like places think, well, if I'm already having to hire a speech language pathologist, whether it be like a contract employee or however they're going through a company to hire a speech language pathologist, why do I also have to hire someone who's trained to be a helper for the speech language pathologist? And is that, you know, somehow giving schools double duty or making it worse on them or harder on them. I just feel like it's a little bit of a hard sell to them to like, why do you need to have someone in the room and why do they need to be someone who knows what they're doing instead of just anyone off the street? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a valid question. And to me, what comes to mind, especially from maybe my business and corporate um, look at it is, uh, what are the other roles either in the school or in the hospital setting where a professional has an assistant or um, some type of helper? Does that role help that a person like the CNA right. and RN mm-hmm. with the uh, CODA with an OT right. with yep. the SLPA, which mm-hmm. I have proposed to some um, uh other professionals in our field, maybe an SLPA being trained in this mm-hmm. uh, could be of assistance. So that would be my argument. What are other ways and other other evidence that we have that professionals need an assistant who is trained um, to help the success of our clients and the professional that may be the assessor or the diagnostician? I think it's a great idea. Do you yeah. guys have uh, SLP assistance in Colorado? We do. And MSE Denver has a robust program and had that uh, before. And I'm teaching the course. I have to say I should have asked for it, but now I'm involved with that course and uh, helping to implement uh, telepractice at that level. And then awesome. I will, this sounds like a very shameless plug, be presenting <laughs> on it at ASHA. Perfect. Perfect. Great. Well, it's it's interesting because I think um, I'm, what I'm seeing is a lot of the uh, programs that have a lot of universities that have undergrad programs 
are now positioning their undergrad programs that if you finish an undergrad and you don't go to grad school, then you at least meet the criteria to become an, an assistant, um, which is, I think is great um, because it because a lot of those students would graduate and if they're not going to do speech or be an assistant somewhere, what are they going to do with that degree? I mean, I know there's other things they could do, but that's a more direct route for them. And then maybe eventually after some experience, they want to come back, reapply for grad school and then do it. Um, but I think that's a, I think more and more of our undergrad programs need to sort of be structured that way. Uh, unfortunately here in Ohio, we don't have assistance yet. Hmm. We'd like to yeah. get them, but we don't have them. Uh, yes, I think that's something that we, um, when we see it happening, we're like, wow, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the pipeline. I sure. see it as a pipeline. And mm-hmm. we all have know, and that someone else can write the article about, and they are writing articles about, you know, the grad school rates and mm-hmm. the declines and things like that. Well, SLPA programs, especially when I even advise students, uh, I have them look at the two, two tracks, sometimes um, per- uh, potential students will come in saying, I know I want to go to grad school, but talk to me about the SLPA again. <laughs> and right. some come in, talk to me about your SLPA program and and um, right. and also about the master's program because I want to know my options. I think that's sure. some of the smartest decisions. And I think uh, if we had more pipelines like that, um, I think we would have a more optimistic outlook over the next few years. Yeah. And that's another thing. Going back to the what do we call people name? There's sometimes that they'll call the person that helps me at the school, the SLP assistant. (laughs) And I'm like, Mm. I almost feel like an episode of The Office or something where I'm like, no, they're the assistant to the SLP. They're not an SLP assistant because that's something different. Oh, you're right. You're right. And we could let that slide, but you're right. If it were to get out and were to right. become a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you are in a state where there is like specific requirements and licensure for an SLP assistant. I feel like mm-hmm. you get into these funny things like that. Yeah. 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 But I think we all see the problems. We, But if, if we can get these two things, I'm glad you brought that up, the, the telepractice, the person who is helping or persons or SLPA or the pipeline that mm-hmm. what are SLPA is doing? Could this be, could telepractice uh, assistant be part of that? I think the answer is probably yes, yes. And more. Yes. Oh, yeah, I yeah. agree. hundred <clears throat> percent. So let's um, switch gears a little bit and talk about where we go from here. And you have in your article, sort of a, a, proposed way of sort of moving forward, looking at some of the social constructs of telepractice. Would you mind talking about the, the Scott model and, and how that may help us sort of focus in on what we need to do? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's uh, the idea and from my readings and um, just my experience were all kind of nebulous about, okay, to design a study and to, the in my uh, mind potentially teach and instruct and uh, train on telepractice. It's going to be important to explain it, <laughs> and not just explain it in a way that okay, you sit in front of the computer and you turn on, you know, right, all, all, right. Well, all you need is internet, and then you can do telepractice, <laughs> right, right. Which helped us during COVID because we were like, if I can just get the internet to work, I'm okay. But right, yeah. <laughs> um, but. Um, I had to explain it and to write it. And then I realized I really didn't have a lot of points of reference. Um, 
in at least in speech language pathology about a model for it. Like if I had to draw a model for it, and then what is this culture of telepractice? Um, and I will say Oveta Harris, um, one of the co-authors, she's um uh, her background is really into ethnographic studies and anthropology. And to me, this is a telepractice of especially those who were who were able to accept it and, you know, kind of gravitate towards it. It's a culture, right? We have our own yeah. language about it. Um, we have experiences that we can our own wardrobe to. sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I miss those conversations a little bit. <laughs> Yes, what we wear, and even our clients, those who gravitated towards it, and those who maybe yeah. rejected it had a similar experience. So I realized that um, in order to um, find that, I had to look at what other, um, and really kind of anthropology and sociology, maybe what e-counseling, and I did find some references there about the, in the congruence between technology and culture. And that's really where I found the Scott model. And I kind of really saw it as, okay, this is what's kind of happening. We have this technology mm -hmm. and you have these human beings and you have this culture of, and this occupation and putting it all together. Um, I hope someone, I, I see so many just holes in what I propose. Mm -hmm. I hope someone just runs and takes this further than I could. Cause I think what I just saw um, and what everybody's seen, but we just need more people to write about it. So um, the social um, construction of technology, you know, and how we as speech pathologists being communicators either adapt to it or don't. And I think that's kind of what's going on. Um, and so I saw, and I think my model is the most basic of models. And when you look at the original Scott, it's most basic too. So I really hope that someone takes it, but we have this, the social group or us, the speech language pathologists, the artifact that we use, of course, a service delivery and that could be, a, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the big nine and all of that in there. And then you take technology and put that in with these professionals and the artifact of what we do, artifacts of what we do and the technology of the video conferencing and how we have to adapt to software and hardware on the internet. Mm -hmm. And then we have our clients and our helpers, e-helpers and facilitators. Just how, what's the relationship between all those? Um, and uh, and like I said, I just, what I hope to do is just put something out there. I hope people disagree with it. I hope so. <laughs> and someone publishes uh, an op-ed to it or uh, uh, makes another model to expand on it. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree that it's it's helpful to push the research forward to kind of define it and say, this is what it looks like. These are the parts that kind of go into it and that we need to consider. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And I've I've read recently some of the some research in sort of the implementation science world. It's a lot about computer systems and how you know how to set up these things. But there is some about healthcare systems and you know, I think I found a couple on telehealth and things like that. And and they talk about similar kinds of things of the you know, sort of the human interaction with technology and what they're what humans naturally good at when it comes to technology whether they're naturally not so good at and and then you get into different um uh professions and disciplines and how you know all so it gets it gets complicated after a very short period of time um yeah. a lot of factors to look at there um but i think what you propose is a model to like you're saying is to, is you're throwing it out there and let's see 
you know, take it, you know, run with it. Other researchers, other, you know, people doing this kind of work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it if it does work, then let's learn from it. Let's try to build and and come up with, you know, better ways of describing what we're doing, better systems, other research. It's all yeah. you know, it's all very exciting. Another thing that you brought up that I wanted to touch on real quick before we go is um, kind of cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity in mm -hmm. the world of telepractice. Can you talk about some things that you have seen with that or why that needs to be something that we're aware of as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it seems like in my article, it's and when I read the article, I think when I mention cultural linguistic diversity, it feels like a hard right turn um, from the others because I talk about the occupational culture and right. the consensus X, Y, and Z. But um, in 2018, I should know this by heart, I wrote an article about an introduction um, for SLPs uh, on cultural linguistic diversity and um, cultural considerations for telepractice. And that little article is the article that could for me, it just keeps going and going and <laughs> um, getting citations and reads. And I'm um, really excited about that. But to me, what's it, what it tells that there's interest there. Right. So, and, um, and unfortunately when I wrote that article, there were maybe two previous articles that in our field that, um, tackled cultural linguistic diversity and telepractice. And, um, I think there'll be more and, and I, but I wanted to put the sense we were looking forward with telepractice. I thought it fit here too. And if I was going to make a right and left turn in this article, I, I had to include it. So, um, I think those of us that have been working, you know, remotely via telepractice have had that moment of, um, wow, this person on the other end has a different experience than me. Yeah. Uh, whether it's the client to um, the practitioner to us or us to that client, we're going into their homes right. or into their schools or communities. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is going uh, to be a journey. And um, and even then I think telepractice is a wonderful thing, but um, I think it's going to be one of those um, issues also that shouldn't be seen as insurmountable. Um, since then, cultural things I brought up, like cultural humility and cultural responsiveness and cultural awareness, my students now coming in, they're educating me on it. And I love right. that. I didn't get that in yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. school. Yeah. So I love it. Yeah. And I think when you talk about like where our field is going to, it's there's a lot more awareness and you know, it's even part of our requirements in our CEUs and everything like that. But I think this past school year, especially, that really hit me, that cultural sensitivity and awareness, because I was in uh, assigned to a district that had a large Native American population and has part of the district was a, you know, a tribal head start that I worked at to program. And there were times where I just like, you know, it, whether it was about like, why hasn't this kid had early intervention or why haven't we been able to contact this family? And I really had to rely on those people that were in the schools to just be like, and luckily I had someone who was very good about, you know, answering my blunt questions and things like that of just like, what happened? Why aren't these kids getting help? Why is it like this? And she was very good about just explaining that culture to me. And I think sometimes that's what it takes is just like having a person where you can be like, okay, I'm not understanding why it is this way, because it's different from my culture and my experience. And I need to understand it to be able to serve these kids. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It reminds me of my, I think I talked about it last time, so I won't, but my first, one of my first positions um, right after clinical fellowship, we we had moved to South Dakota and uh, I was assigned to the Pine Ridge and this was 1990 something. The internet, I didn't even have a, I don't think we had cell phones um, then. So, so yeah. So seeing those uh, students get those services, but what are we doing either, even in the in-person, we could have cultural barriers. Um, Mm -hmm. So even in person or via telepractice, we have opportunities to connect with our clients and get that information, use ethnographic interviews, use a digital ethnographic interview, you ask for um you know to uh for exchanges but in different ways but but acknowledging those things yeah we agree so leslie it's been great catching up and talking about the article so how can people reach out to you if they want well they can go to sig nine excuse me sig 18 and uh get the article and join up if they haven't already joined sig 18 um but how can people reach out to you and maybe ask more questions. Well, absolutely. I absolutely welcome um, questions, comments, uh, discussion. Um, My email address at uh, MSU Denver is L-E-D-W. You know, you might have to cut that one. Can I do a pause? Pause. Okay, Okay. go again. Because I don't want to spell it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to write it down because they, my last name is so long. She's writing down so she can read it back to you. <laughs> oh, is that sucks with my age. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, my email address uh, at MSU Denver is ledward23, and I'll spell that. Um, L, as in Leslie, E-D-W-A-R, and the number's 23 at msudenver.edu. And I hope I said that right. If I didn't, just Google me. You'll find me on the uh, university <laughs> website. <laughs> I'm glad they put the age in your in your um, that's in your email address. That's really nice. There you go. Yep, I only had to pay them $20 to do that. <laughs> well, good luck with everything there in Denver and uh, come back uh, again and Talk to us more about what's going on with you and any more articles you might want to do. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Thank you and Kim, and thank to all the listeners, too. I want to thank Leslie for joining us on the podcast. It is wonderful to talk about the future and what telepractice is going to look like and, and how are we going to train our grad students to be prepared for that reality that they will inherit once they graduate. So it's always great to talk with her and to see what she's doing and and hear her ideas. We need more people like that doing the research, helping us build that future so that we can all be successful and that our graduating students will understand how to do telepractice. And so... Thank you for joining us on this episode. As you can probably hear, I still have a little bit of a challenge with my speech, and I apologize for that, but it's getting better. Had some oral motor surgery um, past a couple of weeks, but it's improving. So I apologize if I sound a little weird. 
but uh, that's just the way it is at the moment. And with that, please, if you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That always helps us attract new listeners. And until next time, next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.